they only have each other, but they can't work together. They can't seem to find a good balance. Hello everyone, my name is Jason Ramirez and welcome to Season 4, Episode 6 of the Hit List Podcast. A podcast where me and a guest cross off films from our watch list and discuss them. I'm joined today by Twitch streamer, model, and horror film connoisseur, Lil Batty. Welcome Batty, thank you so much for being here. I'm very excited that you're here with me today. Hi, I'm happy to be here. So before we get started, I have two questions for you. Whenever you sit down to watch a movie, do you choose something new or stick to your favorites? Honestly, I'm such like what do you even call that like somebody who just sticks to like a routine so like you just go back to things that like make you comfortable i will just watch the same movies over and over and over again like yeah i will watch new things but i it's very rare like i have to be in the mood for it and when Mm -hmm. i do when i am in the mood to watch something new i'm watching everything that i haven't seen in like months like all at once like i'm like okay i gotta watch this one and then this one and then this one (laughs) like yeah and like then I'll just go up. back and rewatch them. Yeah, I have to like catch up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of done the same as well. Like, I, I think that's kind of like my habit now. Like, right now, everything everywhere all at once is currently in theaters, and I've heard great things from both filmmakers and audiences alike. I still haven't had the chance to go see it. Like, I'm not the type of guy to like watch it like once it's in like DVD or streaming. Like, that's what I did with Dune. I saw Dune, I was planning to go see Dune in theaters, but I was like, nah, I, I'm good. And then when I saw it on Blu-ray, I'm like, why didn't I go see this? This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, I did the same thing with Dune. And uh, yeah, the everything all at once movie. I've had so many friends tell me to see it. Same with uh, the new movie X. That's like a new horror yes. like slasher movie that everyone keeps telling me to watch. And I'm just like, eh, eh, right? Eh. Like I want, I want to watch them. I just like, I don't at the same time, (laughs) like not till I'm in that mood. And then I'm just literally going to watch all of them, like all in the same night, whenever I get in that mood. Have you ever done this thing where you'll watch a movie like after the hype and then you say you're on Twitter like, yo, this movie's amazing. Let's talk about it. Like everyone's already done talking about it. That happened to me when I played Bioshock Infinite for the first time. I didn't grow up playing video games. I think that was a good decision on my parents' part because I kind of got a little addicted to it for a little bit. Um, <laughs> I I bought like the whole pack on Steam back in like 2017. So like four years after it was released, right? I played it. I thought it was amazing. I go on like forums and all these posts are like years old, like, like four years old. I can't even comment on them anymore. <laughs> I'm like, oh, come yeah. on. <laughs> it's like, I can't even participate in the conversation because I wasn't, I wasn't there first. Right. Yeah, I'm exactly. a big Bioshock fan though. I don't know if you've like noticed, but I have like a big daddy tattooed Yo! on my arm and a, and a little sister. Where's the little sister? She's like right there. Oh, I'm a, this is my a, first tattoo. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm a really big Bioshock fan. <laughs> I think we're gonna have a great conversation then today. I think this is gonna be fun. This is gonna be really, really fun. <laughs> So my second question for you is, what's your favorite scent? Scent? Yeah, like fragrance. Like a smell? Like um, a smell, yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of like gourmand, warm, like like a sweet vanilla smells, but Ooh. also very smoky smells. So like um, my favorite perfumes that I wear literally every single day 
are by the fireplace from a, a mm-hmm. brand called Replica, where they literally replicate scents like that. So they have like a beach one. They have one that smells like a cigar. They have like, <laughs> you know, like things like that. They have one that smells like a lipstick, like an old lipstick. Like Ooh. it's very specific smells. But like my favorite one is one that smells like a fireplace. So I, I wear that one and then I layer it with like a bunch of vanilla. So I smell like a smoky marshmallow, like a toasted marshmallow. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like Those that. are my favorite smells. <laughs> whenever I have like a bonfire or whenever I participate in a bonfire, my clothes kind of smell a little smoky. And I like that smell. Is it kind of like that? I love it. Kind of like that. Yeah. Where it's like that kind of sweet, like smoky smell. Those are my favorite smells. Like all my candles too. All of my candles smell like um, like burnt tobacco, like that sweet, mm. smoky kind of a smell. That's my favorite smell. Good awesome. question. <laughs> That's a great answer. Yeah. What about you? What's your favorite smell? My favorite smell. Um, mm, I, I used to work at Bath & Body Works, so I smelled a lot of things over there. But there's this one lotion. I can't use most lotions because I have eczema and it sometimes it'll make me like break out like really bad. Um, yeah. But there's this one lotion that I couldn't use so much, but I really like smelling it. It's called um, Limoncello, I think. It's a very lemon smell. Ooh. I have the, the plug-in, the air plug-in yes. of that yeah. in my kitchen. It's sweet, but lemony. Oh, it smells so good. That smells yeah, so good. Yeah, I, I really <laughs> like that one. And um, since I was, like, the only guy and then, like, a, a lot of coworkers are women, a lot of women will come to me and ask me, like, what's my favorite scent <laughs> for, like, perspective man's perspective for like their boyfriends or husbands um mm-hmm. and depending on like their age i'll like see like um peach bellini i don't know <laughs> like it's depending on like the season as well and whatever i needed to sell like oh i like thousand wishes and most mostly i sold more thousand wishes because that's the one that smelled um, the best for me there's this one time that kind of made me a little uncomfortable this one teenager she came up to me and she says which one has more sexual appeal i'm like you're too no. young to- <laughs> no stop I don't know. I will have to say the mahogany teakwood candle from Bath and Body Works. Yes. So good. So good. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about two films that not really alike in a sense. We kind of wanted to go for a horror film theme, but they're not really horror films in a way. Uh, <laughs> if, if you, they're you guys total can't... opposites. <laughs> So, the films you'll be discussing today are The Lighthouse and Dress to Kill. The Lighthouse is a 2019 film directed and produced by Robert Eggers, who co-wrote the screenplay with his brother, Max Eggers. Set in the 1890s, it stars Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson as two lighthouse keepers who descend into madness when a storm strands them on the remote island where they are stationed. The genre has been debated. The film has been alternatively described as a horror film, a psychological thriller, a survival film, and a character study. So this film was on Batty's list. Why, Batty? Why? <laughs> Why? So I absolutely adore Robert Eggers, like, a lot. He has not disappointed me with a film yet. Uh, knock on wood. No, don't think he will. <laughs> I really, I really, really, I adore the imagery that he puts into his movies and like the depth that his movies have. Nothing is ever exactly as it seems. So even with a movie like, oh, The Lighthouse, like, you know, uh, looking at the like trailer and the poster for The Lighthouse, I grew up in a small town in Maine. 
And so Mm. that idea of like isolation, a lighthouse, this foggy, dark environment where you are like isolated with very few people was appealing to me because I was like, what a great idea for a horror movie. And then I saw it was Robert Eggers in A24. And I was like, oh, I was like, this is going to get crazy. (laughs) I was like, this is going to be so good. And I was not disappointed at all. What are the other Robert Eggers movies that you've seen? Like, what was the first one, actually? What was the first one you saw? The first one? Wait, I'm going to pull up a list of his movies right now. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it was The Witch. Uh, That was highly recommended among a group of friends of mine, and I liked it. I think that that has Anya Taylor-Joy in it, right? I think that was his first movie that I ever saw him do was... The Witch? Yeah, was The Witch. I mean, I feel like that's the one that made him as popular as he is in terms of like mainstream like movies yeah no my one of my closest friends is she was so into that movie and that movie took me about two three years to see before like i had i had ever actually watched it i don't know why but i adore that movie and i love how in his movies you are just put into that environment there's no Mm. subtlety there's no like gradual oh let's get you used and like acclimated to the environment no 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 you are put directly into that time period and like Mm. the way that everybody talks if you don't watch it with subtitles you're not going to know what you're doing like you don't you're not going to know what's going on and i love that yeah that was and his new movie the northman just came out which i'm super excited about because it's the same kind of an idea yeah, that one has Ethan Hawke in it, and I saw the Before Trilogy for, like, the first episode for this season, I saw the Before Trilogy, and I loved it, and I like Ethan Hawke even more, so I saw him in the trailer for The Northman, I'm like, you know what, I might go back to the theaters for this one, I might, I just might go back. I'll also watch anything with, um, uh, what, what, are, what are their names, um, the Skarsgards, I will watch anything that they're in. Like, that whole family is so talented. And right. Alexander Skarsgård, I saw him in True Blood for the first time, and I was like, oh! So now I, like, I, I love that family. That whole family, <laughs> they, they're so good. You got the creepy one, you got the hot one, and it's just, it is so, so good. Such a talented family. One of them was in Dune, I believe. I think he was the one who played the Baron, and that was really, really good. That was, um... The dad. What is his name? Because it's the dad and the two sons of like the Scars Guards. What 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 is mm. his name? Let me look it up. Wait, hold on. We are putting a pause on everything to figure this out. <laughs> Stellan. Ah, you're right. Stellan Skarsgard. And then it's Bill and Alexander. Perfect. Alright, I'm sorry. Sorry for that sidetrack. <laughs> oh, you good, you good. <laughs> This film is, to put it lightly, kind of a mindfuck for people, if you're not expecting it. Uh, I definitely was not expecting it to go the way it went. So I want to ask you, what surprised you the most in this film? The entire movie. (laughs) 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 Like, Like, so I went into it almost completely blind. The way that I like to watch movies is pretty much completely blind. I'll watch a trailer, obviously, to get a feel of whether or not I think I'm going to like it. You know what I mean? Because there's some imagery in movies I just I'm not going to like and like I'm not going to watch. Sometimes with more deep, I don't want to say like artsy, but genre bending kind of movies. You know, you kind of have to watch a trailer to figure out if you're going to like it or not. I watched the trailer, saw the poster, and that was it. And I was like, Ooh. I'm going to watch this movie. Because of what I said earlier, I grew up in Maine, and it was that isolation and that 
that whole idea behind it of um like lighthouses i was like this is gonna be so good so yeah no the entire movie surprised me the way that emotions are portrayed the turn of events that seems to be taken, the symbolism behind every tiny thing in that movie, mm-hmm. its it just all comes at you so fast. And you don't expect anything that happens to happen. Definitely. It was great. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> so good. There are a few points that I really liked. Not really. Not, sorry, that's not the right word to say. Surprised me the most, right? The first one that was kind of funny was like when Willem Dafoe just like farted in Robert Pattinson's face. And I was just like, whoa, what? Okay. <laughs> okay, that's that's kind of a it's kind of funny. <laughs> but but the one that really like made me like, whoa, okay, this is gonna start a little bit more creepy or kinda messed up, you know, was when Robert Pattinson's character, he is annoyed by the seagull and just grabs it and beats the life out of it. Like he just like he just keeps going. I'm like, bro, it's dead, let it go. And I have my own inter- interpretations as to what that s- signified. But actually, yeah, that's actually my next question. Like, what what are your own interpretations of the film, specifically with the seagull killing? I think that's a really good starting point for, like, talking about, like, symbolism and the imagery in the movie is the seagull scene, which a lot of people, I feel like that kind of defined how they would view the rest of the movie was that very startling, like, first scene of Pattinson mm-hmm. just snapping and grabbing the seagull and just, you know, like, beating the shit out of it. But it's it's interesting and it does play into the symbolism and imagery of the movie because, you know, seagulls are supposed to be the the souls of dead sailors and like mm-hmm. like dead sailor men lost at sea and everything like that. Like that's what the seagulls are supposed to represent. So by him doing that, it's a young man who's, you know, fighting with a lot of insecurity and a lot of issues that he goes through throughout the movie, just completely just obliterating this creature that's shrieking in his ear and bothering him and trying to kind of tell him what to do and like you know know what I mean like he's just in Mm -hmm. his ear getting into his head and he just takes it and he just beats it and it's like and he kills it he destroys this creature like it's unrecognizable when he's done killing the seagull so it's like it's the symbolism the imagery is super interesting but even from the very the very first scene in the movie and the very last scene of the movie are completely identical. It starts out with just dark fog and just that idea of isolation is just instantly the first thing that is recognized in it. And then last scene, same exact thing. It's just darkness and fog. And the first time that you see Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe's characters, it's from behind with that fog. So you don't really know what you're about to see. And then when you actually see their faces, it looks like they're posing for a portrait. They look like these two just very like confident, almost professional. Oh, what's a, what's a good word, way to word it? Like lighthouse keepers. Well, yeah, they look like they have this like respectable domineering presence mm. to them. And they're just staring blankly at the camera like they're like they're taking a portrait. And it's it's just it gives you this kind of like power play kind of an idea as to how the characters are going to be. And then like when when you brought up the how the first time that they really interact is Defoe farting in in Pattinson's face. I mean, that's also that's a power struggle happening right there where that's him trying to be like, oh, I'm always going to come out on top. I'm always going to be one step ahead of you. I'm always going to be in control of the situation and do things that you are not expecting 
And that's how the movie plays out. And like the the scenes from them eating at the table, their first meal together is mm-hmm. Willem Dafoe is pressuring Patson into drinking. And he says, I don't want to drink. You know what I mean? Because he's he's like, I don't want to drink because in my handbook, it says that I am not supposed to drink. And Defoe is like pushing him like, no, you have to like alcohol is what keeps us going and like all this stuff. And he's like, it's, it's how you fight the isolation is creating your own you know, your own ways of coping and, and, you know, dealing with it and letting loose. And he takes a drink and it's mold water. He put mold water in there. It's, it's not, it's not actual alcohol. So again, he's always one step ahead of everything that Patson does. It's that power struggle. And then a few scenes go by and you get the scene with the seagull. And then he, it was explained that it was the, I'm sorry, my thoughts are all over the place, honey. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I love it. I really, I get so excited Don't talking about this movie and I'm not sure how you, um, you know, how you really want me to break this no, all apart, but I just have, okay, cool. Okay. But anyway, so it follows through in with the, the power struggle idea with this older man, this younger man, and how he's always staying one step ahead. And actually in the script of the, for the movie they don't have names in the script of the movie it is just old and young old and young Mm-hmm. and i thought that was fascinating i didn't know that so i went through actually the other night um and i was looking through the script of the movie just getting like bits and pieces out of it and trying to get a better understanding of how i could get my thoughts across and that was something that really stood out to me so in the script of the movie it does describe pat's its character that he looks like a dog that's been in a cage for too long mm. and i think that's I think Patson did a wonderful job kind of embodying that. If that's the image that he was supposed to be giving out and getting worse and worse and worse throughout the entire movie. So then at the very end, when that power struggle finally comes and he snaps and he just beats Willem Dafoe like to bits and treats him like a dog. And he says, that's a good dog. That's a good dog. As he's walking him to his grave, he made a grave for him and throws him in there. He's like, that's a good dog. So it's it's that power struggle then gets flipped. And it's it's so interesting because a lot of people have viewed the imagery of the lighthouse in its own as either something religious or as something that is like a personal struggle or it being something that is like um, Defoe's power over Patson. So the whole movie, Defoe is viewed in this lighthouse, constantly being close to the light, doing whatever he wants up there, spending all of his time up there, while Patson is stuck underneath in the boiler room, shoveling coal into his version of the light, which is this dark, like, you know, smoky, disgusting place, while Defoe is up top in this very clean, beautiful lighthouse. And then it's Patson, the next scene after that is Patson trying to push this keg all the way to the top of the lighthouse to bring it up to Defoe just to have Defoe kick it back down and push him down the stairs just for him to keep doing it again and again and again which kind of goes into a lot of people have been putting um like Greek imagery into this movie like stories and everything like that into this movie so there is a story um the story of Sisyphus it's a Greek story of the man who uh defied Zeus and wouldn't die like he cheated death too many times so Zeus punished him by sending him to the underworld and makes him push a boulder up this hill and goes back down up this hill goes back down up this hill goes back down for all of eternity so a lot of people view that as like the imagery of that is he's just constantly trying like Patson's character is constantly trying to reach this light that Defoe is at and he just can't seem to do it because Defoe just keeps pushing him back down 
Um, So that's a really cool piece of imagery in the movie as well. I like how we keep saying um, Defoe and Pattinson instead of the characters' names because they're both named Thomas in the film. But Mm -hmm. we're going to keep it like that. When when we're talking about the character or the actor, uh, I think you can tell. I'm talking to the listener right now. So, so dear listener, um, we're talking about the characters. We're not talking about the actual actors. Yeah, there you go. That's it. All right, go ahead. Yeah, so so while the characters do have the same name, again, in the script, they're just referred to as old and young. So if you want, we can Mm -hmm. just refer to them as old and young. Um, If you want to, I just feel like the... It just really is the best way to kind of describe them. It is Defoe and yeah. Hatson. They they just embody these characters so well. Um, we can change see... it though. I don't mind. No, you're good. You're good. Okay. Uh, but uh, just a quick note that I'm going to talk about a little bit later. But even the director Robert Eggers said that he couldn't see anyone else but Defoe being in that char- be that character because anyone else it would have been kind of goofy. But he embodied that character so well. I believed. He was in the 1890s. I believed he was a lighthouse keeper who spoke that way. Yeah, I honestly couldn't see anyone else doing it in such a convincing way that I couldn't sell that Dallas Defoe. All I saw was the lighthouse keeper. I want to talk about the other person who defied Zeus. It's also interpreted in this film is Prometheus. So in the in the tale, Prometheus brought fire from the gods down to humans, and he was punished for it by Zeus, and he was tied to. I'm kind of paraphrasing. I've haven't I haven't read it in a while, but he was tied to a boulder, and every morning or so, his liver liver would be eaten out by vultures, right? And it will grow back, and it will happen the same time again and again every single day, and so he was tortured for eternity, basically, because he defied the gods and gave fire to humans. Later on, it kind of worked out because that way, with the fire, the humans were able to sacrifice to the gods and so it worked out for the gods in the end but he was never relieved at that punishment and one of the gods told him like zeus will forgive you he will let you go if you just apologize and he said i despise zeus and he chose not to not to ask for forgiveness he said i'm not gonna say sorry so that's kind of i kind of interpreted in in this film so let me know if if you kind of saw this way i kind of saw it as I saw the island as kind of like a purgatory for Pattinson's character. I kind of saw it as he, he he committed a sin and he has to atone by going to this island. And depending on how he acted, he would either be, be redeemed or he'll be punished. He let a man die. He didn't do anything about it. He took his identity and he kind of like ran away. And so I believe that's why he's in the island. That's his own purgatory. The way he was going to be redeemed is if he kind of like recognized his own behavior and treated the seagulls well whatever but as soon as he killed that one seagull that's when the higher power said okay you cannot be redeemed you're going to be punished for what you've done and that's kind of how it kind of saw it as his own purgatory and he was being punished they chose to punish him for his for his crimes and they even show this in the end when when he's naked on the ground and there are seagulls pecking at him and taking eating out his liver. And I also remember when he fell from the lighthouse when he was trying to paint it, that a seagull was trying to eat out his his legs. Not his legs, but like his jeans. So I was like thinking like that's maybe some type of foreshadowing. Or it could be interpreted another way where it was just another island. It was just a job he was having. But he died when he fell from the lighthouse 
and everything else happened. Er- everything else that happened was just a dream when he fell. So there's a there's a really interesting like perspective that you can take on the movie where they are both the same person, and that kind of goes into the the uh the way that gaslighting is portrayed in this movie as well. There's a story of um, so, and this is the whole thing with this movie. I think there's like four. I want to say there's like three or four stories that a lot of people have been comparing this movie to. And it's mm-hmm. obvious, like the the liver and um, the, the story of, um, you know, the man pushing the boulder up the up the hill <laughs> for eternity as well. <laughs> there we go. I cannot I can never remember his name. I, I wrote it down so I would not forget. And I just it will not stick in this noggin. Anyway, so that's an interesting perspective. But there's also that story. It was a short story of uh, the man who turned into a roach. Did you did you ever read oh, that story? Uh, Metamorphosis, right? Franz Kafka. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how he yep. turned into a roach and his family was so burdened by him that he just mm-hmm. locked himself in a room and starved to death. And that was his way of dealing with and helping his family because he, with this transformation that he made, he could no longer provide anything that he thought would be useful to every, anyone else. So he isolates himself and stays as this creature that, you know, we don't know if he could have turned back or not, but he stays as this creature and then just decides that that's where he's going to be. You can see a lot of that imagery in this movie as well. But in terms of the idea that they are the same person, there's a lot of moments where Patson claims that something has happened and Defoe, I'm sorry, I keep using the actor's name, but <laughs> comes back and is like, no, you did this actually you came at me with an axe. You, like, actually the boat. So, like, the, the first time it happens is, is the first notable time that it happens is when the boat that was supposed to bring them more food and everything, because of a storm, it wasn't able to bring them more food. And Patson was like, oh, well, that was yesterday. Defoe's character says, no, that mm. was weeks ago. We are out of food. Yeah. So you don't really know who to believe. And then the next time it happens is um, Patson starts to, go a little bit crazy and he's like I have to get off this island I have to like get away from this storm so he decides to take the little boat and he's trying to get out but the boat is destroyed and then Defoe goes up to him he's like you came at me with this axe and we're trying to kill me and you went ahead and destroyed the boat like you did this and so I also found that um in those moments of that happening when he destroys the table because the only time in the movie that they seem to be anywhere near equals is when they're eating meals together and when they're going to sleep. The fact that in this moment of gaslighting or or not, like we, it's never explained if there actually was two different people on this island. And the way that the interactions happen is we can't really tell. It could be just in one of the other's heads. Like it, it could be an entire fabrication of somebody whose isolation is getting the better of them and just needed some sort of human interaction. So he created one of his own. But when the, the axe is like put through the coffee table and or like their dining table, the rest of the movie just falls apart. That's when you see the first mm. Kraken imagery or the, the Poseidon imagery with Defoe. That's when the mermaid uh, starts to become a very big part in, in the movie. And that's when the seagulls start getting a lot more aggressive as well. Same with the, the lighting imagery. And the fog gets darker and heavier. The storm gets louder. The foghorn is overpowering any other audio in in the movie because I think it's that's when you, you reach this like final crescendo in the movie of isolation and stress and paranoia that Patson's character is just being completely overtaken by. So you can't really tell what is real and what's not. So in a way the movie is gaslighting <laughs> is gaslighting the viewer while also you're trying to figure out if 
this man is being gaslit or not. And it's just that whole movie was just so, there's just so many things that you could talk about. I mean, this, I could turn this into hours of me just discussing <laughs> all, every scene and just breaking it apart. And I think that's one of the reasons why I liked it so much. I don't know if you have anything you'd like to add on to that. But. Uh, no, but I do want to talk about when you said earlier about how he's isolated. You could tell like immediately from just the island, just the fog. I want to add to it that the reason why is the aspect ratio is one one point nineteen to one. The reason why it's a square is because it's supposed to isolate the, you even even more. So like you don't have all this open space. You're constricted to this square space, and I think that's a great example of using the, ra- the ratio for better filmmaking. So I, I really like that part of the on the decision of the filmmakers on that one, and also like the, the reason why it's in black and white. I'm go ahead and talk a little bit about like the production side. Production please, side. please. So the reason why it's in black and white is so it doesn't seem too colorful. It just was supposed to isolate you, transport you to the 1890s. And if they had color in it, you would see how some some of the scenes would actually look more pleasant. Because inside the house, the little shack that they lived in, it actually looked kind of pleasant. People would probably be thinking like, huh, you know, if they moved this over here and they had added in, you know, like a picture, it would be like a nice place to live. But since it's in black and white, it kind of looks dreadful. It looks like a place you don't want to stay at. They also did the old method of photography, a black and white photography that made it look like you could see every pore of their skin. It was very high definition in that way. And it was based on the old model of photography. So it was with 35mm film. And with the filter for the film, they had this so blue, green, ultraviolet will go through, but red wouldn't go through. So when you look at the film, since the skin has some some red in it, you can't really see it. It looks really dark because the red's not going through. They look really dark, even though they're fair skin, they're light skin. And when Robert's face is full of blood, it looks like oil because the red's not going through. And only time it kind of like kind of goes through a little bit is when he's in the lighthouse and the, he sees the light and it overexposes his face and you see that it's kind of drawing out a little bit, but only because it's blinding him entirely. So that's just a little bit of the cinematography and photography there. Oh yeah, and it. I mean, I think it adds a lot of grit, grit, and a lot of depth to the. I don't want to say urgency. But it really puts you, it puts the whole situation in perspective of this is a dirty, grimy, bad mm. place that you don't want to be at. So Defoe's character constantly acting like he wants to be there. He needs the light. Like this is what, this is what he has. Like if he doesn't have it, he's just stuck in this dark, disgusting, like lonely place. And again, with the the aspect ratio of it all being a square, you feel that suffocation. You feel mm-hmm. that like paranoia. You feel like it makes you feel dirty when you're watching it because of the way that it's shot. I think if it wasn't shot in this way, it wouldn't have had the same effect. I don't I don't think it would have hit as hard. I think the unsettling aspect of the visuals in this movie really drive home the ideas that they're trying to portray with, again, the isolation. Is this real? Is this not? The light being... And because of what you just said, how it can't pick up red, except for the scenes where they're inside of the lighthouse with that super bright light hitting them that kind of makes them seem more real that makes them seem like they've they've hit this point where they look a little less unsettling even though they don't it's very scary when he finally gets up <laughs> in the lighthouse it's very very scary but it's it's the only time they look like more than just grime and dirt it's they're they're glowing like they're literally glowing and you can kind of 
almost imagine color on their face. And even though it's completely in black and white. Yeah, I love that. I think that was a really cool thing to add in there. Mm -hmm. Also about the actors, they both wanted to work with uh, Robert Eggers for a while before the film was made because I guess The Witch made an impression on a lot of people. <laughs> it made an impression on me for sure. For oh, certain. such a good movie. So Willem was like, he wanted to do this film. He read the script. He really liked it. And he was trained to do the voice with a few um, few people that were, how do you say, acting coaches? I guess yeah, that's the word. The voice acting coaches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he said in the interview for the special features that he used to work as a theater actor. And so his experience in the theater gave him a lot of experience doing monologues. So that's why he was able to do the monologues so well in like most of them only one shot because he already has the experience of doing that. It doesn't really happen so much in film because it's not really a skill that's really needed, but it is in theater. So that's that really helped him bring out the best in his performance as old Thomas. And as far as Robert Pattinson, there was an original draft where he was kind of like a Victorian person, whatever, like kind of like a socialite, whatever. And he said to Robert, Robert Eggers, he wants to do something that was weird and out there. And so when it was revised, he saw it and he's like, oh, this is very weird and very out there. I'm going to do this film now. And I have a lot of respect for, a lot of appreciation for Robert Pattinson because he, he decided he could do all these movies for money, which he does, but he also does these other weird roles that are like whoa that's kind of weird but yeah he's he doesn't i feel like this movie would be or it is like a challenging role for both of them specifically Definitely. robert patson because obviously robert patson i mean we know him as cedric diggory and um like edward <laughs> in the twilight series so it's it is <laughs> and and now batman <laughs> <laughs> but like i i just Seeing him in this kind of a role, because I hadn't seen Batman when I had watched this movie either, so seeing him in a more serious and gritty role like this was really unnerving, and it, I think it added a lot, and it, it made me gain a lot of respect for him as an actor. I already had respect for him, don't get me wrong, but it's, <laughs> I mean, this just, like, this really completely blew me away like just the way that loneliness is described in this movie too it's all visual there's really very little dialogue so if you don't if you're if you're just watching it while you're doing something else you're not going to understand what's going on it's exactly. a movie you have yep. to focus on like you have to watch to understand what's happening one of my favorite scenes in the movie is one the the scene where the Poseidon Kraken craziness is going mm -hmm. on with Defoe's yep. character, like that imagery, whether it's a dream or it's not, we don't really know. And he grabs Patson's arm and his eyes mm -hmm. are the lighthouse, like the light from the lighthouse. Yeah. And you hear the foghorn and it's super loud. That is one of my favorite scenes. But also the scene where they fight for the first time when they are super drunk because they almost kiss and then it's because mm -hmm. it's it's again the way that loneliness and isolation is described in this movie. Patson with the mermaid going for something. Uh, Defoe constantly going back up to the lighthouse and jerking it up in the in the light because that's that's his thing. You know what I mean? Like that's what he's imagining as as his savior from this loneliness. So when Defoe is just kind of desperately trying to drink and connect with Patson's character after being such a dominating character the entire time, it's it's like this moment of his character breaking down. But then the two, they're so drunk, they're about to fight each other and they're face to face and they almost kiss. And then Patson pushes him away 
and then they start fighting like they're just punching each other <laughs> because they don't they have all these emotions and all these feelings and they're just isolated with just the two of them they don't know what to do so one of them is finding it in possibly a fantasy creature that he's just made up in his head and the other is finding it in an inanimate object in, in the light from this lighthouse I just had to throw that in there. I just, I absolutely loved that. And I just thought that was I love it. such a, that was such a cool way to kind of humanize these two characters because the whole movie, you don't really know who's real and who isn't. You don't really know, like you can't connect to them at all. And except for in that one exact moment where you're like, oh no, these are just two human beings who are stuck here slowly going crazy they only have each other but they can't work together they can't seem to find a good balance of like power so i, I really like that like the way you said it like the isolation stuff and like the loneliness part because i definitely felt those emotions even before the pandemic but certainly after during and after the pandemic i guess we're still in it i've definitely like relate to it in that sense like i had to like find an outlet you know to like have my emotions and stuff like that because the other things I would do, we can't do anymore. And I'm not gonna go into do too much detail because it's a little too personal. Uh, <laughs> of course, of course. I think we've pretty much discussed everything. Well, actually, do you wanna hear my opinions about it? I would love to hear your opinions on The Lighthouse. So before we started the recording of this podcast, Batty and I, we talked about like how we found the films just so we know exactly where we stand on it, I told her, if I never got to hear the Foghorn anymore in my life, it will still be too soon. Here's the thing, I did not like this movie. <laughs> and not that I hated it, but I'd rather not watch it again. That's as much as I can say about that. <laughs> Complete opposite opinion <laughs> this movie. I don't... I, the, but the thing is, it, I was, I was kind of conflicted on it, because I was like, I was very... I love the production of the movie. I love the actors in the movie. I thought the cinematography and the way they filmed it was amazing. But I didn't like it. <laughs> I don't want to watch it again. And if you want to ask me questions as to why. Oh, I, I would love to know why you did not like this movie. I want to know what did it for you. I think the fact that I don't like... Are you familiar with the, with the term bottle episode? No, I'm not. So a bottle episode is whenever a show does an episode where the whole cast is stuck in one room and they act out the whole thing together because they don't have the budget to do more than one scene outside of that one set. Let's say the show community, they're stuck in the study room to find out where someone's pen is and they're trying to look everywhere for the pen, but they then they have like character development and stuff like that. I love that episode because... They make fun of the concept of the bottle episode while also being a bottle episode. And this film is very much only about these two guys on this island. It just made me feel very claustrophobic. Whenever I watch a movie, I want to have fun. But I'm also willing to like think as well. And I'll be honest with you, when you said you want to watch The Lighthouse, I was like, mm, Okay. Because <laughs> I'd seen the trailer, I'd seen the, the poster, and it wasn't something I would actually go out of my way to watch. But I'm trying to explore more outside of my comfort zone. And I think I did that. And I found out I don't really care for this movie. So, um, thank you thank you for the decision. Thank you for, like, your <laughs> choice. Because it made me explore more. But I was like, mm, I know what I don't like now. <laughs> really quick, did you watch the movie Mother? That's the one with Jennifer Lawrence, right? Mm-hmm. No, I haven't seen that one. You would not like that movie either. I... <laughs> love that movie i guess i like a movie that does make me feel a little bit uncomfortable and it makes me think 
I watched this movie um, actually right during a big move in my life. And I was um, staying with my brother for a period of time. And I decided that that would be the best day to um, watch this movie. And I'm glad I did because I feel like emotionally it hit me very hard and I was able to kind of break apart and not even break apart a barrier, but I was able to kind of view myself in the movie. In the movie Mother, it's pretty much the story of this woman and her, her husband who is a writer and uh, he's not, he hasn't been able to come up with a story in a while, but he's a very successful and popular writer or poet or something like that. And um, it's him getting success and her being isolated in this house that she's trying to make for him, mm. trying to have a baby for him, trying to do all this stuff for him. And he's just, he does not, like gaslighting is another big point in that movie as well, the isolation, mm. everything like that. But it's very claustrophobic and fast at the same time. And where this movie the lighthouse is done in black and white. It's got that grit. It's got that ugliness to it. Mother is very fast-paced, colorful, loud. Everything's coming at you at once kind of a movie. And it's overwhelming and it's gruesome. And I would also consider these to both be horror movies, which is something else I did want to kind of talk about in the different ways that people do view horror. A lot of people have been saying that The Lighthouse should not be considered a horror movie, which is at the beginning of the podcast, I did kind of talk about how it was a a genre bending kind of a movie. People are saying that it shouldn't be horror, but I think the, the moments of isolation and the way that gaslighting, isolation, everything like that are portrayed in this movie is the most perfect example of horror that I can think of. Like this movie is a horror movie. It is scary. It made you feel unsettled. It made you feel uncomfortable. Mm. It made you think about things you didn't want to think about. It gave you imagery you didn't want to see. It made you view people in this rough situation taking advantage of each other and not helping each other and just the the gruesomeness that humans can can do in search of this one thing that will provide them a moment of happiness. I just I I just I love this movie. I just loved it i thought it was terrible in the best of ways (laughs) because like you said it is uncomfortable it's not a movie that you should watch if you want to watch something that will make you feel comfortable you don't feel safe you don't feel comforted at the end you don't feel like any resolution was made you have no answers you go into it with with you end it with more questions than answers and you have to rewatch it to get those kinds of answers. But it's such an unpleasant experience that you don't want to watch it again to get those answers. But at the same time, that's 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 got to be life there, honey. That's life right there, <laughs> baby. Like you don't want to have to do these things, but you won't get the results that you're looking for unless you do. So it's like. Sometimes it's better to not get the answers that you're looking for. So in terms of you, I used yeah. to, you, you don't ever want to watch it again, even though you have a bunch of questions. You you don't want to watch this movie ever again. I, on the other hand, I was like, I've got a ton of questions. Let me watch this movie five more times <laughs> <laughs> and put myself through this until I get the answers that I'm looking for. So I just, I, I think that is such a great example of horror as a genre that affects people. It doesn't have to be bloody. It doesn't have to be gory. It doesn't have to be a slasher. It doesn't have to be anything like that, like those very physical aspects of horror. It can be the mental aspects of horror Mm because at the end of the day, we are all prisoners in our own mind. So if you're having to face that, that reality in a visual aspect, it's unsettling, it's uncomfortable. But again, that itself is horror. Love this movie. I love this movie. Like, it's so good.
And now a word from our sponsors. Now back to the show. So now we're going to discuss the movie that Jason had picked, which is Dressed to Kill. So Dressed to Kill is a 1980 American neo-noir erotic thriller film written and directed by Brian De Palma. The film depicts the events leading up to the murder of a New York City housewife before following a sex worker who witnesses the crime. The film features Michael Caine, Angie Dickinson, Nancy Allen, and Keith Gordon. All right, so why did you pick this movie? So I'm a fan of Brian De Palma's films. I haven't seen too many of them. I think the first one I saw without realizing it was him was Mission Impossible, and I really liked it. And it was before I started like really studying film, really taking in more how films are made and how film different directors do their own method. But the thing I remembered from this Mission Impossible is how there weren't too many special features, but it felt like a film. If that makes sense, it felt like it was you're watching a film when you're watching when you're watching Mission Impossible. And then I want to see The Untouchables, which takes place in the 1920s in Chicago, and it's with these cops trying to like deal with what's his name Al Capone. I think it was Al Capone. It was during Prohibition. That's that's the setting of the film. And I saw it. And I'm like, why didn't I see this sooner? Because I love the, the direction, the cinematography of this movie. There are things happening in the foreground and the background. There are references to older movies like Battleship to Battleship to looking this old Russian film. <laughs> I can't remember the name of. And I'm like, this guy knows what he's doing, you know? Overall, it's just the camera telling the story and it has to do with Brian De Palma. And so I wanted to watch this movie because of Brian De Palma. And I didn't realize it, but there are two actors here who I really like. One of them is Nancy Allen. She was in Robocop, and I really liked her in Robocop, and she plays a sex worker in this movie. And the other is Michael Caine, who plays a therapist. And I found that out right when the credits opened. I'm like, oh, I, I, I'm going to like this movie. So that's why I chose the movie, because I really wanted to learn more about how he's able to tell a story through the camera. Yeah, no, I, I had never heard of this movie up until um, podcast. And uh, you saying that this was a movie that you had wanted to watch. But that was also the first thing that popped out was I was like, Michael Caine. (laughs) (laughs) So what is something that stood out to you the most in this movie while you were watching it? So there are a lot of things that stood out to me, but one of them was the split screens. And we're going to talk about a little bit more later. But there are some shots that are like split screens where two things are happening at once and two very different locations. The one that's most relevant is when Michael Caine's in his office. I'm going to say the therapist is in his office and he gets the phone call from the killer. And Nancy Allen's character, she's at home and she's getting a call. She's getting a call for like her next job and also trying to call like the stockbroker. They're both doing completely different things, but then eventually they're both watching the same interview. That's one of like the split screens. The other part is like they shoot with a split diopter lens. If you're not familiar with what split diopter is, it's kind of like a unique type of lens where they shoot two things. It's it's shot once, right? It's like on a camera. They keep two planes of focus in focus. So it'll keep something that's in the background in focus and something in the foreground in focus. But there's like a split like line in between. And that's where like where the lens is kind of split. To show both of them in focus. The scene I remember the most is when, after the killers apprehended, they're having that little lunch together on uh, the sex worker um, with the with the teenager, yeah. and they're having this conversation, and you can see that the women who are behind him are kind of disgusted by this conversation that they're having, and you, they don't say anything, but you can see they're disgusted with, with the conversation and how they don't notice the people around him. And the other part I really, the other scene I really liked. 
was when they're at the police station and Michael Caine's character is called in for questioning and the son of the woman who was killed, he's there as well and he uses his own technology to eavesdrop on them. And so he's in focus, he's like in the foreground and the conversation between Michael Caine's character and the cop are in the background but they're also in focus as well. And so you're not really sure who is supposed to, who are supposed to like to pay attention to the most. Whose scene is it? Is it the kids or is it the cops? And that's what I really like about the movie. The split screens, the split after shots. Yeah. Do you actually want to just go ahead and we're going to jump into talking about that because I really want to hear a little bit more about that because it seems to kind of be that to get a better feel on actually talking about this particular movie, I think you have to talk about the way that it's shot Yeah. because it doesn't like you trying to talk about just the the actual um plot and things that happen in the movie it doesn't hit as well if you don't understand like the way that everything is shot so actually if you want to go ahead and start talking about that um that would be pretty cool yeah so the way De Palma does his films he always storyboards months in advance and that's one of the things I love about him is that he plans for everything he leaves nothing to chance he already knows exactly what's gonna be shot as opposed to some other filmmakers like Oh, I'm not going to say his name, but I will. David Fincher, who will do 100 takes per scene and not rehearse. Like, bro, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> De Palma doesn't waste film. He knows exactly what he's going to do. And so in the storyboards for this, which are available in the Criterion Collection Blu-ray. Criterion Collection, if you want to sponsor me, uh, we, we can talk. Come on, Criterion. Hit him up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the storyboard, you see it's in that small little square. He has like a line between all of them as to what's going on. And so he had this happening from the jump because he knew exactly the type of movie he wanted to make because of the main theme of the of the movie, which is about split personas. Because the we're gonna spoil this movie. The killer and the therapist are the same person, so they occupy the same body. They have different personalities, and that's kind of like what the the theme of this movie is like: split personas and a confusion of who these characters are. Because in the movie, you find out later on there are two women following. Yeah, it's Liz. Her name is Liz. The main character's name is Liz. Mm -hmm. There are two women following Liz, and they look very similar because they're both played by the the same actress. And the only time you see Michael Caine in the killer's um, dress is the final scene in the therapist's office. So it's just like the theme of like split personas, and the best way to tell that type of story is to do split screens and use split diopter shots. And one other... Movie I like that also you split after shot, but not really too much was Jaws. Uh, I'm sure you've seen that movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> you remember that scene where uh, the sheriff he's at this beach, he's worried about people because he can't tell people that there's a shark in the water. But the mayor yeah. says we need money. <laughs> uh, yeah, v- very similar tones to today. And you see, like a some a concerned citizen comes up to him, has a conversation with him. He can't focus on what he's saying. He's focused on a little on like a kid who's out in the water. But they're both in focus. Yeah. So that's just an mm-hmm. example. Like what kind of, they use. It's a they perfect use this, example. They use this yeah. heavily in Dress to Kill. And I love it about it because it, it works for this type of movie. Oh, definitely. Because it makes you kind of look in the background a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And, but you don't miss it. It's like they, they do make it a very obvious thing. Like, oh, no. <laughs> You, you need to see what's happening over here to understand what's happening over here. Like, right. you understand now? And then it's like, it's not till later on that you're like, that's why the focus was on this person. Mm-hmm. Definitely. All right. So what were you thinking as you finished watching this movie? What were the thoughts that were going on in your head as you were wrapping everything up with this movie? 
Yeah, so the final scene really stood out to me because it's it looks like she's about to get killed. It looks like Liz is about to get killed. We we think that it's over, but it's not. And then, oh, it actually is over. She was just having nightmares because how can you not have a nightmare after what you've experienced? Yeah, for real. I'm not sure if you know this. I didn't start watching horror films until I was probably like 22, 21, because I've been scared. I've always been a scaredy cat, right? And the movie that made me appreciate horror films was Candyman. Oh, I love Candyman. Going from Scaredy Cat to watching a very graphic movie like that, that's a huge jump. But I really loved that movie, and that's what got me into horror films. But as far as, like, with graphic violence, things that make me very squeamish are knives to the neck. And... There's some movies like they'll do it, but like I said, PG-13 movie, they'll hold it back. They won't actually show the violence. This movie doesn't stray away from that. You see that twice in this movie where they kill the, the woman in the elevator where she's like slashed to death. And they show mm-hmm. it here in Liz's nightmare when she's, her throat is slit in the bathroom. So I was kind of I mean, like, that elevator scene is beautiful. Ooh. That elevator yeah. scene is so well done because we've seen elevator murders before. Like we've we've seen that. Not, <laughs> I know that sounds weird, but like we've we've seen we've seen the kill in the elevator before. But I've never mm-hmm. seen someone do a kill in an elevator like that. And I loved the the secondary view that they had of the little mirror at mm-hmm. the top corner of the elevator when and then the, the woman's just getting like closer and closer and closer and closer. Yes, and like or the, the killer, excuse me, is just getting closer and closer and closer, and it's just. Oh my god! It was just—I thought that was really good. I thought that was super, super good. Um, that was probably my personal favorite part of that movie. Definitely, I wasn't gonna say beautiful. I was gonna say, "Oh, that's well done." But I wouldn't say beautiful in my opinion. <laughs> Not beautiful, but just the way it was shot, the colors, everything about it was mm-hmm. just so well done. Very well done. It's a great example in suspense because De Palma—he's been called a hack. He's been called like a copycat of Hitchcock, which he says, oh, that's that's fine. I take inspiration from Hitchcock, so I don't really care. He, he has a very yeah. chill attitude when people say that. But the inspiration from Hitchcock is kind of evident right here because we we as a viewer know that the killer's still in the elevator, but Liz doesn't know. She wants to help the woman who's dying. And yeah. it isn't until the very last second that she sees the reflection of the of the light on her, which is from the knife. And she's like, oh, no, I'm out. <laughs> and it looks like she's about to get killed as well. And, yeah, that's a great... Which, I want to talk about the creating suspense. Because De Palma kind of t- talks about briefly in his interview for the Criterion Collection. Which, again, Criterion Collection, if you're hearing this, uh, let's talk. Let's talk. He says that we're going to move on to the train sequence, right? In the film, she's being chased by someone who she thinks is the killer, but it's really the cop. Eventually, the actual killer is right there. She's being chased afterwards she, in, the, in the train subway station. I'm sorry. I'm also going everywhere, just like you. So oh, it's fine. Read. No, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> when you get excited about talking about something and you get all over the place. Honestly, it's great. I think that's awesome when people get so excited and like want to want to tell you everything at once, but you can't. So it's like you got to yeah. take it one at a time. I love that. I think that's great because uh, that means you do genuinely, you did like it and you, you're excited to talk about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so she's in the subway, right? She's in the subway station and she asks, uh, she tells a cop what's going on, but the cop doesn't believe her. And he just looks at her funny because I think he knows that she's a sex worker and he like doesn't trust her or whatever. And she's like, oh, he's not going to help me. 
And then these guys, this group of guys, just follow her. They're just harassing her, and she's trying to move away. And so they see that someone's about to kill her, and they're like, ooh, you know, we're done. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I, I find that funny. You know, like, they saw someone with a weapon, and they don't help her. They just walk away. I found that really funny. Well, it takes and, place in New York, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, just, it's like a perfect, uh, what do you call it, like a snapshot, or not snapshot, but like a perfect, um, like a, a visualization of like how people tend to just be like, oh, don't see it, not not getting involved, even though right. they could have just saved a woman's life. They're like, instead, mm-hmm. they're like, well, I don't want, I don't want none of that mess. And it's like, it's kind of sad. It's like, ugh, uh, humans, humans can be real selfish. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but De Palma, he said that he loves trains for this effect because Whenever you want to create suspense, using a train is great, especially in the subway, because you're already kind of uncomfortable. You're already in a public public place, public transportation. You're inside a train. You cannot move anywhere. You can move between cars, but you can't go anywhere until the train stops. And there are lights flickering. You don't know who's exactly there. And it's in the shadows, and it's at night. So it's a perfect situation to create suspense. And I agree with him on that. I've seen several movies where there are train sequences. I think trains are a great place to have a film because they don't they can't stop they have a schedule to go to and yeah you can you can either have a fight inside this train or on top of the train and you have to watch out for like bridges like whoa yeah <laughs> so a few examples i can think of spider-man 2 when doc, which a great example was a train a train sequence doc ock is fighting spider-man that's a great sequence spider-man 3 not a, I'm not a big fan of Spider-Man 3, but I love the fight between Sandman and Spider-Man where he puts Sandman's head against the moving train and he kind of like shaves off his head, but it's fine because it's sand, so it's not really violent yeah. in that sense, but it is. And yeah. also, Collateral, if you've ever seen that movie, Tom Cruise is chasing Jamie Foxx. <laughs> I love saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, um, Tom Cruise plays a villain in that movie, and he's chasing down Jamie Foxx and what's her name? Jada Pinkett Smith, he's trying to kill them, and they're just running in between trains late at night to avoid him, and then they eventually are able to avoid him. What's another good one? Hellboy? I haven't seen that one. Oh, you've never seen Hellboy? Hellboy's got a great scene with a train, uh, like a subway, and then there's, um, oh, it was another good one like that. I'm trying to think of all the different ones. I had a bunch in my head, and they all just went away. <laughs> there's this movie with Johnny Depp and what's his name? Oh, forgot his name. He was in the, he was in the social network. People don't like him anymore because of it of the accusations against him. Army Hammer. Army Hammer. Kevin Spacey is that? No, no, not Kevin Spacey. No, it's it's Army Hammer. <laughs> oh, no, not Kevin Spacey. It's the lone. Yeah, I just remembered. I remembered. It's the Lone Ranger with Army Hammer and Johnny lone Depp. Lone Ranger. Mm-hmm. And I love like the scene where they're fighting on the train because things keep going weirder and weirder. And also more violent, they're fighting. But that's a great example of a train sequence that I love. Ooh, Indiana that, Jones. Ooh. Indiana Jones. When yeah. he's like a kid and he's on the train and there's like all the animals yeah. and stuff. And then the snakes. That's that's a really good one too. Yeah. That's, that's a good one too. So we're kind of going off topic. Essentially, the Palma <laughs> says. <laughs> this is turning into trains, says, planes, and automobiles. Automobiles. The <laughs> Palma says that he loves using trains for suspense. And another example of like creating suspense is the therapist's office so people who didn't figure it out until then the therapist is actually the killer most people don't know this until the very last moment when michael kane is right behind liz <laughs> michael kane's character is right behind liz and is about to murder her and she's warned and then he's shot by the other woman 
who mm-hmm. looks like him. Yeah, that moment was like, ooh, this is kind of... Because when I was watching that movie, I thought the killer was right behind the teenager. Because it looked mm-hmm. like it was. And this, the only suspense I felt in the office was Liz trying to seduce the therapist so that she could find the information. That's the only suspense I felt there. Like, oh, is she going to do it? Okay, she did it. She's good. But then you realize, no, that's not actually... Liz is the one that's in danger. And she's saved right at the last second. And that's a great example of suspense. That's pretty much why I love this film. Because it's just the way you tell a story through the camera and through editing and music. Yeah, no, definitely. I would actually like to talk about the music a little bit. Um, The music composition in the movie and how that kind of ties into creating suspense. Yeah, the composer, he loved working with De Palma because he will give him free reign to do whatever. So there's this scene in the museum. There's no dialogue whatsoever. No mm-hmm. no one's speaking. All you hear is the music and some other sound effects. When he watched the scene again for like the interview, he said like the woodwinds are her and the strings are him or something like that, where different instruments represent her movements and different instruments represent the other man's movements. I was like... Yeah, you're right. I did feel that. You're right. As far as like the music composition for some of the sex scenes, he said he didn't want to do a saxophone because up until then, uh, all erotic films would use saxophone. And he wanted to do something different. And he did something different with this where it's very, there's like some vocalization. There's like some sort of, sort of um, chorus in there. And it, it sounds like, in my opinion, kind of like a siren, you know? Not like a siren. It's very it's like, dreamy. There it's we very go. dream sequency, very mm-hmm. like, um, yeah. I love it. spooky in a way. Like. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And he, he did it that way to stray away from that type of um, sound, that type of music. And I think he did a very good job with that because it was a very unique for the film and unique in its own type of music. And also some elements of the psycho theme from... Alfred Hitchcock's cycle, you know, when she's murdered in the in the shower, but he didn't want to do it because other filmmakers have been doing that as well. So he chose not to do that. But there's some influences of it in there. So in the first scene of the dream sequence where she's dreaming of like that rape fantasy, you do mm-hmm. hear of it a little bit. When it goes from like ethereal, dreamy like seductive music to like, oh, horror music, oh she's about she's being raped, whatever, and all that. Yeah. So you hear that in the beginning, and you hear that throughout the film, such as when um, the last time we hear it is the very ending when Liz is being killed in her nightmare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does seem like he kind of uh, keeps any music from the sex scenes are put into like dream sequences, or mm-hmm. even uh, like when they are walking around in the museum and things like that. That kind of audio could also be something that they tied into like one of the sex scenes or something because it sounds very dreamy. None of it sounds real. Everything like the way mm-hmm. that the music seems to be in the movie is just it makes everything seem like it's a dream. Um, I did really like the music in the movie. That's I'll, I'll give it that. I'll give it that. The music was. was great. So you did tell me you kind of gave a hint as to like you didn't like this movie (laughs) Um, (laughs) can you tell me a little bit why the thing that i didn't like about the movie is it was kind of discriminatory to towards transgendered people because it kind of gave the effect that like oh if you're if you're if you're transgendered you're mentally ill that's something i wasn't a fan of and de palma has said in later interviews that he that was kind of an ignorant take on the film i think um you know, him coming out and saying something about that is good because obviously we learn 
you know, we're constantly mm -hmm. growing as people and we learn from our mistakes and we learn in time what things are okay and what's not. Um, and I think that was a very common trope in a lot of horror in yeah. like the 80s. I mean, um, Sleepaway Camp. We could even discuss Sleepaway Camp a little bit when it comes to like some sort of gender dysphoria was being viewed as uh, some a very negative thing. It was viewed as something mm -hmm. that, oh, if... If you have this sort of dysphoria, these sort of like questioning of your, uh, you know, you know, gender from birth, like you're assigned gender at birth or anything like that, then that means that you are mentally ill and that means that you could be doing bad things. Um, obviously, it's a load of horse shit to think like that. But I think in the 80s, that was a common, I mean, even in the 70s, 80s, when it came to like these slasher films, that was that was a common trope. So it's great if he did come out and, you know, he was like, you know, did not like that. Um, that was definitely something that turned me off from the movie when I mm -hmm. like figured out that was what was happening. Because I will also have to say one of the things I didn't like about the movie it was very obvious. It was very like kind of had an idea of who the killer was going to be. Like while you're watching it, which, you know, any thriller should do that. Any sort of murder mystery should do that. I am also not a huge fan of the like erotic noir, like thriller kind of movies. Really? Not a huge fan. Not my thing. It's just I get so <laughs> like uncomfy. I'm like, like getting dirty. Like, ew. So, like, <laughs> so like that's not my favorite thing so i i wasn't a huge fan of that the pacing in the movie did uh did not do it for me um mm. i understand what he was going for with everything being kind of like a dream sequence kind of a feel to it it gave me definite like david lynch twin peaksy kind of vibes every once in a while which i love twin peaks is one of my favorite shows of all time I think it was so focused on the sex aspect of things that I couldn't take it seriously. And I, I do think, you know, I'll give props where props are due. I, I like when movies are unafraid of viewing uh, or having women have sexual urges and needs. I think that's great because in society, it's viewed that women, it's, it's dirty, it's bad. If you are a sex worker, if you have any sort of like sexual urges or needs, like sexual health is non-existent for women. Mm -hmm. That's a man's thing. You know what I mean? Like I hate, hate that mentality, um, which again was something big and, you know, obviously earlier films and, you know, anything like that. Uh, it, it's slowly going away, which is great. So like I just I it was great that she was able to kind of express throughout the movie and you know like the the whole thing with the sex worker and then at the beginning it was like this uh, middle aged woman who was like trying to figure out you know um, her sexual identity in a way mm. um, if that's the correct verbiage for that but that that's <laughs> kind of what it seemed like it was just. This movie just did not do it for me. And I wish it did. And I wish they did kind of tackle different topics in a different way. Again, have to take in the time period that the movie was made. Things were a little bit different. Education like we have now is not as easily accessible. Not excusing any of the things in the movie, obviously. Just, you know, when you watch a lot of older film, it does seem to have these common themes. Um, so that did kind of turn me off from it. And it was just... I don't know, man. It was so slow. Like the pacing just, I just could not focus on it. It took me like three days to watch this movie because <laughs> I, I just could not focus on it. I couldn't pay attention. And then there was, there wasn't a lot of depth to it. I like a movie, obviously, because of my opinions on The Lighthouse. I like a movie that really makes me think about things that really like puts me in an uncomfortable position that, that, um, you know, that that's compelling in more ways than just one or like two 
Like it makes you want to think about it after you're done watching the movie. Mm -hmm. And even while I was watching the movie, scenes would happen and I was just like, all right, cool, that scene's done. I wasn't <laughs> lingering on anything, you know? I like to linger. I like to I like to uh, take whatever I see and, and kind of um, digest it a little bit more. So then like when the movie was over, I was like, okay. I was like, I was like, it's over. That's great. So I do understand why people like that kind of movie. Like, I definitely understand the appeal behind a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It just, this particular one just was a little dull for me. And because I don't find the, like, erotic thriller thing to be an alluring genre or anything like that or, or a piece in a movie, it just didn't, it didn't click with me. And I, you know, it's totally fine if it did. If, you know, if you like having, like watching a movie or just in general, like uh, listeners, anything in general, if you like having a movie that has those sort of themes in it and that does, like you do find that appealing, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. Watch a ton of them. There's a bunch of them out there. Just personally, wasn't my cup of tea. Mm. Um, I will never watch this movie again. <laughs> <laughs> the same way that you won't watch The Lighthouse again. I will I will probably never watch this movie again. And that's okay. I don't think it was mm -hmm. bad. It just wasn't for me. It was in no way a bad movie. But in some ways it was bad. But it wasn't a bad movie <laughs> as a whole. It just wasn't for me. Yeah. We had the same opinion for like each other's films. That's, mm -hmm. that's, a, com that's a common theme for today. Yeah. That, that's a common theme. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is great, though. I mean, I like that we both ended up picking movies that, I mean, I we'd never seen or like I had mm -hmm. never seen Dress to Kill or The Lighthouse. And this pushed me to finally watch it. And I found something that I really, really loved, but then mm -hmm. also kind of discovered a genre that I just I don't I don't particularly yeah. care for. Um, but I never would have watched it if it weren't for, you know, you you saying that this is the movie that I wanted to watch. So there's nothing wrong with watching something you would have never, you know, seen yourself watching. Um, yeah, because now I can say, though, I've seen it. Wasn't my favorite thing. If somebody asked me how I felt about it, so yeah, I mean, there's, I'm, I'm happy that we did this. I'm, I'm happy that these were the selections that we made. I'm very happy too, because um, last season I liked all the movies. Basically, this season is kind of half and half, and I'm like, oh, finally, that's what I'm looking for. It was interesting. Like, I definitely think going into the lighthouse, I, I was unsure if I would like it or not because it did take mm -hmm. me so long to finally watch it. And I remember people, I, I had heard a lot of mixed reviews of people being like, have you seen The Lighthouse yet? And me saying no, and people either telling me that they loved it or they hated it. There's, there was a mm. very mixed, uh, that was like a very mixed bag kind of a review. And even people that like, you know, I truly, really, really trust their movie recommendations and things like that, who told me they didn't like it. And so I was like, well, I'm probably not going to like it. I don't want to get disappointed because I thought the imagery was so cool. And I was like, mm. I don't want to be disappointed by this. Because I told you I had like a personal connection to the imagery of lighthouses and the isolation of like a place like Maine and you mm -hmm. know just the whole way that they look like the sailor kind of a thing so I was like I don't want to go into this and be disappointed so again if it weren't for the podcast I wouldn't have actually watched it and again I really love it my desktop background is one of the pictures of um you know De Defoe and Patson in, in the lighthouse and um I just I absolutely loved it I have like a t-shirt coming in the mail for it too <laughs> awesome I really I really love loved this movie and I wouldn't have uh, I wouldn't have finally sat down and watched it if it weren't for you so I appreciate oh, it thank you thank you I, I love this positive influence on people's lives I'm very humble about it. <laughs> I love that it's like this movie that like really affected you in a way that was like negative. You're like, well, I'm happy that you found a positive. <laughs> I'm happy that you think so positively about this. <laughs> so that concludes our conversation today. Thank you so much, Batty, for being here. I really liked talking to you today. And I hope you could come back and do another one. 
I think oh, we'll yeah. have another great conversation. Definitely, anytime. Thank you for having me. We already kind of know, but I always ask this question. Were the movies a hit or miss with you? Um, Lighthouse, definite hit. Definite, definite hit. Dress to Kill, gonna have to be a miss. That's a, <laughs> it's a miss. It's the opposite for me. A Lighthouse, it was a miss, but it was a contested miss. Like, it was... On the edge of being a hit and on the edge of being a miss, but I had to go with it. It's a miss for me. Dress to Kill was a definite hit for me. But you know what? <laughs> I, I love it. We're opposite on this one. I love it. Me too. So where can we find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Twitch under Lil Batty with two Ys. You can find me on Instagram at Lil.Batty with one Y. You can find me under all my socials under Lil Batty. Two Ys, one Y, who knows? All my socials are going to be linked together. So if you go to one, you'll find the others. Awesome. So um, I, was, I was stalking Instagram, I mean, doing research for the interview. And I, saw you have, <laughs> I saw you have a lot of pictures of yourself on there. Um, don't um, don't stop doing that. It's, it's nice. No, thank you. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> I, like, uh, I like that. Thank you. So that's all for today, folks. You've been listening to the Hit List Podcast. My name is Jason, and until next time, cross off a new film from your list. Thank you for listening to the Hit List Podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider giving us five stars and leaving a review. It really does help. You can also follow us on Facebook at The Hit List Podcast and Instagram at the underscore hit list underscore podcast. 